here's something I bet you didn't know. The federal government has been working since 2020 to create a Canadian agency dedicated to water management across the country. Public consultations ended on March 1st, and the Indigenous engagement process will continue throughout this year. Here to talk more about this uh, is one of the members of the University of Ottawa Forum on Water, Law, and Governments. A pleasure to welcome Alex Lilo, a postdoctoral fellow at the university and a member of this team to our show to talk water management. Alex Lilo, good morning and welcome to the show. Good morning, Sterling. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's very good to have you with us. This is interesting stuff. Uh, I don't know, Alex, to be perfectly honest with you, how many Canadians are aware of that opening statement. By the way, friends, this is about uh, Alex is one of a team a member who, who published this uh, piece at theconversation.com recently entitled, Canada has 20% of the world's freshwater reserves. This is how to protect it. And so the government of Canada, at least according to you, Alex, is aware of its uh, of the need for it to provide some kind of protection slash management uh, regime to our water supply. How aware is the federal government of its responsibility? Well, that's a good question. Um, I'm tempted to, to start with the fact that a lot of experts, um, you know, in water law, water governance, water policy, have been calling for a national water strategy for years, if not yes. decades. Mm -hmm. um, so that's something very important to keep in mind. Um, I believe that the federal government is aware of many of the biggest water-related issues that the country is facing, um, but they really actually declared in, well, the Liberal Party declared in 2019 and committed to create this federal water agency. Mm -hmm. um, so right now, I, f I feel like um, we will know to what extent um, they consider those water issues when we have the actual, actual final project. So we know, you know, uh, what's the degree of commitment uh, they took in creating this water agency. Okay, fair ball. But I, I suppose here's as I, I as I began uh, my remarks this morning, Eric, with the idea that here's something I'll bet you didn't know, and and I, and I mentioned the fact that this public consultation process on mm -hmm. some kind of water management initiative ended on March 1st. I would imagine most people listening to us right now this morning, Alex, had no idea there was a consultation process underway, let alone the fact that it's already over. Well, that's, <laughs> to be honest, this is like so uh, common in my daily basis that I'm, I'm sad that it's not, you know, uh, the, the word is not spread um, to more Canadians. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the, the Fed had, they, well, they still have a, a platform online called Place to Speak, which is um, a platform you use for public consult consultation, which is especially, uh, you know, useful in, in in the times we are living in right now. Mm -hmm. um, so I encourage every, anyone interested in knowing what type of public consultation the, the federal government is, is leading right now to go have a look to this website. And it's also the, the main, regarding the Canada Water Agency, it's also the main um, um, platform where, where you, you will find the relevant and up-to-date information that, that the government released. And what is that address again, Alex, please? So that would be place to speak um, dot ca, I believe dot com. Sorry, 
And Place if you just speak. Google PlaceToSpeak, okay. yeah, uh, Canada right. Water Agency, you'll uh, reach the, the, the proper page. So I would imagine you and your team at the University of Ottawa Forum on Water Law and Governance were very much a part of the public consultation process with this uh, this uh, water agency formation in mind as the end game. What did you and your group say to the feds when your turn came? So um, our group is quite young. Uh, we were actually created in uh, on January 1st, 2021. So we did not get a chance to uh, properly interact with the, gov- uh, the, the federal government on the, on the consultation. Although uh, what we did is, uh, you know, publishing a few pieces like the one you mentioned in the conversation, but also some uh, scientific papers that will be published in the next few uh, weeks or months. Okay. Um, and the thing we did is organize um, a conference, um, a, you know, Canada-wide and international conference on this uh, Canada Water Agency, especially to discuss the, uh, the possibilities, you know, what we know, what we don't know, what you expect. Uh, that was a, a very interesting event, uh, purely interdisciplinary, uh, with a few international speakers as well that, that shared with us, you know, the, uh, the experience that we uh, saw in the Hindus in France or in New Zealand. So that's, that's how we positioned uh, ourselves at this point. And we are staying very much aware of the next steps and, um, you know, commenting and, and sending documents or, or research that we, that we did to the, to the government. Right. Uh, Eric, I need to take a break. I'm sorry, Alex, I need to take a break for the news. Just before we do that, though, is the, it, it, would there, it, it, when we get this water agency, is it likely mm-hmm. to be under the responsibility of the Minister of the Environment, or would it fall into another uh, department? Um, so, interestingly, both, uh, uh, both Environment Canada and Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada received mandate letters from uh, Justin Trudeau to, uh, you know, work together to create this Canada Water Agency. Ah, okay. What we know at this point is that Environment Canada is the lead on, on the creation of this, this, uh, this agency. And what we not necessarily expect, but hope is that it's going to be not only a federal initiative, but also, uh, you know, including other orders of government that is, uh, provincial, territorial, municipal, indigenous governments. So uh, absolutely. That's, that's another option there. Quoting from an article at theconversation.com entitled, Canada has 20% of the world's fresh water reserves, and this is how to protect it. We're talking, this is a, an article written by a team called the University of Ottawa Forum on Water Law and Governance, and we're delighted to have team member Alex Lilo with us this morning. Mr. Lilo is a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Ottawa. And Alex, you know, during the news, uh, I got a very interesting email from Doug as he uh, was enjoying our conversation about Ottawa, and it's very one sentence for you and me to consider and talk about. Doug says, we might be blessed with an enormous water supply, but we still can't seem to deliver safe drinking water to every Canadian. It's shameful that people in Canada need to boil water. And you address this issue uh, in the article that you and your teammates wrote. You talk about the challenges of freshwater management in Canada, including, of course, dealing with climate 
climate change, uh, access to drinking water in indigenous communities. You actually say that. And you also talk about flood policies, which are a reality in some parts of Canada. So Doug's point is well taken. It's 2021, Alex, and we still can't deliver drinking water, fresh, clean drinking water just to all Canadians. Is this whole thing, this whole water agency, a massive cover-up for a failure on the part of the government to do what they said they were going to do five years ago, which is deliver safe drinking water to every Canadian community, and we're talking about Indigenous communities, or are they actually serious about an overall overarching water management plan? Well, this is a very, very important point, and, and thank, thanks to, to Doug for raising it. Um, I think there is, unfortunately, no cover-up that can be done for, for the feds on this point. Um, it's absolutely crazy that, uh, you know, most of Canadians in cities, uh, you know, get to enjoy clean, um, high-quality drinking water where, you know, a lot of indigenous communities, First Nations, don't get this basic human right. Mm-hmm. Um, it is, when it comes to the uh, Canada Water Agency, it is a very interesting point because we are not 100% sure yet that this agency will encompass this issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is because we don't quite know yet what is going to be uh, the nature, the format, the, the structure of this agency. Uh, the question of drinking water, at least in, in indigenous uh, communities, First Nation, is a federal responsibility. Um, if, and I say if because we absolutely, we're not quite sure yet, but if this Canada Water Agency becomes an inter- intergovernmental structure, mm-hmm. will it have the, the capacity, the authority to deal with this federal, um, you know, uh, field of uh, of power of responsibility mm-hmm. i hope so uh we don't quite know yet right and you also mentioned before the news alex that it's very important that you did too that this it an effective water management program in canada can't all be done by one level of government certainly the role of the federal government is to establish a national policy a framework for water management but as you pointed out uh, it, it also is going to take in terms of implementation it's going to take all levels of government provincial and definitely municipal governments to make this whole thing work what is the role of cities and municipalities in the big picture as you and your teammates see it? Well, cities and municipalities, they have, um, you know, an increasing uh, important role when it comes to water management because of um, access to to, uh, drinking water or because of wastewater treatment. Mm -hmm. All those infrastructure that we are are benefiting from in in municipalities and big cities are, um, you know, managed, built uh, by those um, order of government that get actually their power from the the provincial government. But the fact is that, um, you know, with urban areas getting bigger and bigger and, and with more people, cities are absolutely essential actors in, in, when it comes to water governance. The question mm-hmm. is still how their role is going to be framed within this Canada Water Agency and is there uh, going to be any, um, you know, see, how can I say this? Is any city um, 
government or aspect is going to be represented within this, this agency. We don't ah. quite know yet still, but we hope. Right. In other words, would, the, would uh, representatives of the municipal level of government have a seat at the policy and planning table? For instance, yes. That's, and, and once again, the, the question of, of the re- representation of the different actors and governments is also something that the federal government needs to, to tackle because we don't know how it's going to take place. Mm-hmm. Uh, are, are, you mentioned France and you mentioned New Zealand in passing a few minutes ago, Alex. Are those examples of, of models of existing water management agencies elsewhere on the planet that Canada can look to uh, as models? Or uh, why did you mention specifically France and New Zealand? Well, those are two uh, interesting models that, that you know, Canada can take lessons from from, but for two different reasons. Uh, France, uh, you know, has a national water management governance scheme that was established back in the 19, 1960s. So there is a lot of experience there. And there's okay. also a focus on water democracy with the involvement of um, no, non-governmental actors, which is an interesting um, you know, initiative that Canada could be looking at. New Zealand on its end is um, very interesting in terms of reconciliation with First Nations. Um, New Zealand has been very proactive, well, the, 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 the New Zealand government has been very proactive in terms of reconciliation with uh, the Maori uh, communities. Mm-hmm. And they have been working very closely in developing their uh, environmental government framework with the Maori communities, including the Maori's vision of the world and trying to translate into, you know, um, legal concepts that exist in, in the Western world. Interesting stuff. So uh, uh, as we go forward, uh, and this is an election year, are you expecting this, for example, Alex, over the course of the next uh, several months to be brought up uh, as, uh, as some kind of campaign, see, uh, see what we're doing, we're future planning? Uh, I would think for the feds to, to bring this up as an election issue would be also to expose themselves to the fact that they haven't done a lot on the drinking water on reserves uh, point that they committed to five years ago. I suspect it won't be an election issue. Do you think the opposition will try to make it an election issue? Well, that's a very, very good point, an interesting point. Uh, my, I believe that Canadians need to be more aware of the water challenges that actually exist in Canada. You know, as Agreed. you said at, at the beginning earlier, uh, that's something, yes, we are blessed with a lot of water, but there are, there are major issues that we need to be aware of and, and you know, take the necessary action to, to tackle. Mm-hmm. So I truly... I, it's going to sound very, you know, idealistic, but I truly hope that water governance doesn't become, you know, a political battle because, right. well, it, it has to be at some point when it comes to, you know, the governance of water and the division of powers, but there's everything that has to be done. So in the meantime, it is also a blessing, you know. Yes, the, the feds have been very um, slow, we could say, on, on taking actions, on, on national water governance, but at the same time, the fact that there are everything that has to be rebuilt or 
revitalized is also a very, very rare opportunity you know, nowadays. Mm-hmm. Well, they're, they're taking some steps, and you and your group are going to make sure that they take the right steps and at least try to push them in the right direction. We wish you considerable success on this with you and the group at the University of Ottawa Forum on Water, Law, and Governance. Alex Leo, a real pleasure to have you on the program this morning. Congratulate your teammates for us, please. It's a very fine piece that you wrote, and I know you're very busy doing a lot of other work. Keep it up. We need a, a, a good uh, matter of pressure to be maintained on the Fed so they at least keep their focus and get this thing done. Thanks for being with us, and I'd like the opportunity to speak to you again as we go forward. Thank you so much for having me, Sterling. It was an absolute pleasure to chat with you this morning. There's Alex Leo, a postdoctoral fellow and member of the University of Ottawa Forum on Water Law and Governments. Yes, we will at some point in the future have a Canada Water Agency. Let's hope they get it right. It is a real pleasure to welcome our next guest to the program. He has been the subject of much media attention over the past week. He is uh, the uh, Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law at the University of Ottawa's Faculty of Law. A pleasure to welcome Michael Geist to our program this morning to talk about Bill C-10. Michael, it's been a long time. Good morning and welcome. It's been a while. Thanks so much for having me. Well, it's great to have you, Michael. You've been everywhere uh, in the news this week because of Bill C-10. And for the benefit of those early in a Saturday morning in Vancouver, uh, can I summarize Bill C-10, and you can amend my summary, I hope, very quickly, by saying the federal government, in in its uh, in an attempt to, uh, to attack big tech and make them pay their fair share and create a fairer deal and a more level playing field for all Canadians, that in the course of trying to accomplish that, the federal government decided to give itself extra powers, including the power to uh, uh, award the CRTC uh, 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 surveillance uh, uh, capacity over the internet. And that would include everything right down to and including, uh, well, as they like to say, your cat videos. You have, uh, you have not approved of any of this, and you have called this government the most anti-internet government in history. So, good morning, Michael. <laughs> it's been quite a week. <laughs> it, it, it has definitely been quite a week. And, and I do think that this government has really shifted in perspective. I don't think there's any doubt about that. And I think it's policies really across the board, not just when we're talking about this bill or even some of the other things that the Heritage Minister has in mind, but into some of the other departments as well. It's failure to deal with privacy. Um, it's failure to deal with some of the high prices we pay for con- communication services, wireless yes. and broadband. Across the board, there are problems. But it's C10 that's getting the attention right now. And while I wouldn't say that this is about surveillance on the government, it ha- does hand significant power over to the CRTC. And I think it does so quite frankly without having even a strong case for why we're doing much of what uh, the government says they want to do mm-hmm. uh, and I'm, i've been around uh, this business i was on on the radio before CanCon regulations came down i was i was part of the first wave of that back in the 70s michael so i've i've seen a few of these movies from the crtc over the years not the least of which was one about what 10 15 years ago when they were confronted by the press saying uh, as as the internet really started to come on uh, people were interested in well who's going to control all of this and people said to the cr or asked the crtc well will you step up and take a leadership 
role in in monitoring the internet and the CRTC at that time as I recall said absolutely not our plate is already plenty full enough with monitoring stuff over the public airwaves you can have the internet we're not interested so all of a sudden this agency that said that not too long ago is going to be charged with supervising the internet how reluctantly yeah, no, you've got a good memory, and you're right that uh, back in the 90s, there was an attempt, frankly, by many of the same groups that have been lobbying for C10 to increase the the, the level of, of the role that the CRTC would have over over the Internet. The CRTC at that time said, listen, we think we have the power under the Broadcasting Act to do this for audiovisual content, but we're going to mm-hmm. choose not to. We don't think it's going to advance our, our policies. You know, obviously, we fast forward now to, to 20 years later, and... It's not that CRTC has said that this, they necessarily want this, although they have suggested that they're open to more regulation. But it's the government, really. It's the Heritage Minister, Guibault, that is throwing an enormous amount of power into the hands of the CRTC. And I have to say that even before this particular issue blew up, the prospect that user-generated content would be captured by this bill, mm-hmm. the, one of the problems with C10 was that it was very uncertain that almost all the hard decisions were left to the CRTC. So when you talk about... Uh, a bureaucratic agency granted enormous amount of power. This bill actually did this even before the government made changes to this legislation, vesting them with great power and really actually putting off many of the hardest decisions about who might even get regulated and leaving all of those questions to the CRTC. That was the part that I think uh, scared a lot of people the most, Michael, was the fact that it was so open-ended. Well, you know, down the road, uh, the CRTC, when we cross, we'll cross that bridge when we get to it, sort of uh, language that was so ambiguous. Uh, I mean, the pushback on this has been quite significant. It's As I said earlier, it's been quite a week, and I said that for a reason, because all of this pressure, uh, and you've had something to do with it, uh, has uh, has caused the government to, well, I, I'd hate to say rethink because I doubt that's happening, but they have had to react and they've had to back away. Tell, Give us the details of specifically what they've stepped back from. Yeah, well, you're right that they've had to react. It's been sort of one of the top issues raised each day in the House of Commons and obviously has generated an enormous amount of public public discussion, public debate, and I think in many quarters public outrage. I don't mm-hmm. know that they've stepped back, frankly, from all that much. I mean, all of this this particular round of concern around Bill C-10 started with the removal of one of the safeguards that they had put in their own bill that said that user-generated content, the content that millions of Canadians post on TikTok and Instagram and YouTube, it, mm-hmm. initially they said that would not be subject to CRTC regulation. Uh, they removed that exception. And while this past week they have, they've said that they've sought to address some of those concerns, the simple reality is that that exception is still not in the Act. They did not go back and, and fix that particular concern. In fact, if anything, they made it very clear that despite their claims that there's you know nothing to see here, move along, that this does regulate user-generated content, and they've been a bit more explicit about what the CRTC can do with respect to user-generated content. Are they still hoping, if, if that is the case, and if they're still trying to slide some of this stuff by us while they're distracting us with other shiny objects, um, if, if that's the case, then um, where where does the consumer uh, end up 
in all of this because uh, I think a lot of the uh, the uh, and again let let's let's uh, let me rephrase, Michael. It's an election year. The, this is a very unpopular uh, thing to want to introduce to the population uh, during an election. We'd like to control what you put on the internet going forward. That's not going to fly very well in an election year. So uh, why I'm wondering why the opposition isn't really making a lot more of this from a, an election point of view than they are than they are now. Well, you know, listen. I think, in fairness, the conservatives certainly have been very vocal on this issue. I think um, the bloc believe that this that this position, even the government's position right now with internet regulation, is a winner in Quebec, and so they've been I know. pretty supportive. The NDP has kind of struggled, I think, a little bit to try to figure out exactly where it stands. It's it's I think broadly supportive of the legislation, though clearly it's it's been hearing from a lot of its supporters about the concern around freedom of expression. You know, I, I listen. I'm not a political strategist. I'm a law sure, professor, sure. but I but I agree with you that it's hard to understand what the what the perceived benefits are outside of you know a, a small cohort of lobby groups that have been really driving this legislation to try to understand why it is the government is so insistent that it thinks it's a big winner to regulate the internet in this way. In fact, Guibault is preparing, he has said, to introduce another bill that will involve website blocking, that will involve mandated takedowns, that will involve the creation of a social media regulator. So far from backing away from this, the government, led in this instance by Guibault, but clearly supported by the Prime Minister Trudeau, um, see this as somehow as a political winner. Personally, I think that they are really out of step with where a lot of Canadians are, um, but it's, it's hard to conclude otherwise based on, on sort of what we've been hearing directly from the government itself. Now maybe they're maybe they're going to go for sticking it to the man, Michael. Maybe that's that's part of the sliding this whole thing past us while distracting us with other shiny objects. Maybe that the whole point of the exercise is we're going to stick it to the man. We're going to make Zuckerberg and all those big guys pay and like the and and stop ripping off the Canadian news media and and go for laws like Australia and other countries have. Get get real with these guys and get tough with these guys. And so that is politically popular. Uh, taking on the big corporations. Uh, giving Canadian consumers an, a break. So that sounds very good. In fact, it sounds kind of politically popular. And at the same time, they're sliding this other thing through on the backside. Uh, and that's the part that I think, uh, I think they don't think we notice. Yeah, no, you may be right. I do think you're right to highlight that, you know, part of this is the belief that going to battle against the so-called web giants is a political winner. And I think that, oh, yeah. uh, that, that, that many are clearly concerned with the role these companies are playing. What's, what's ironic is that, you know, many of those concerns involve things like the data that they collect about us, how that gets gets used. But on that front, the government has been, been pr practically inert. They introduced legislation a number of months ago and then have done absolutely nothing with it. So it's pretty telling to see what they've prioritized. The kinds of concerns people have around big tech and the data they collect doesn't go anywhere. The concerns they have about being able to access the internet on lo with lower pricing doesn't really go anywhere. Uh, mm. But what does go somewhere? Uh, you know, more regulation of actual online content, takedowns, blocking, uh, new layers of bureaucracy, whether in the CRTC or otherwise. It's, it, it, they're, they're odd, but I think really problematic uh, policy choices. And as a lawyer, Michael, I'm curious, uh, you, you would have a, a one eye cast in the general direction of big tech just to see what sort of defense, if any, they would mount for themselves in the face of all of this propaganda. What have they, if anything, said about Bill C-10? 
Well, that's a really interesting question because they didn't really say much of anything about this bill, mm-hmm. in part because they believed that some of their core concerns, let's say around whether or not the, the, the content of millions of their users would be regulated, that was off the table. And so, in fact, these companies didn't even appear before the committee studying the bill. Uh, the committee didn't do a very extensive study, but they did not even include any of these companies. And so it is very, very, I think, striking, and I think not, not, not even a little bit problem, quite problematic, that you've got a major shift in the bill, a major shift in where you're regulating, and you never even heard from the companies uh, that will be the direct target of that regulation. And while we may not have any sympathy for these companies, mm-hmm. let's understand that we at least should know whether or not these policies are workable, what the implications would be, how the companies might react, and yet the committee never heard from them. Yeah, that's really interesting. I see. I hadn't heard anything either. And I thought, well, I'll ask you because if anybody's going to have heard from them, it would be you. But they've so far just uh, no need to come forward. Well, they have in the in light of what we've seen take place, they have raised concerns. So their their public comments now have been to express concern about what the government has done. Um, or intended to do with this removal. But I guess my point is, you know, as the government seems to be making up some of its policy on the fly, um, Mm -hmm. directly implicating an important industry, and whether you like them or not, we all rely on them, we all use them. Um, And so surely good policymaking involves all those various stakeholders, involves at least understanding what are the implications of some of these kinds of choices. When you say you're going to regulate user-generated content, uh, and you say that you want these companies, you're going to mandate that, for example, they get into our own feeds, on our Instagram feeds, our mm-hmm. TikTok feeds, sure. and decide what gets prioritized. Can we at least hear from these companies to say whether they're able to do that? Can we at least hear from them to say what's the implications? We are quite literally the only country in the world that is contemplating this kind of regulation. Interesting. So, uh, and I know you have to run and we're grateful for the time that you uh, made uh, available for us this morning, Michael, but the takeaway for Vancouver listeners here on a Saturday morning, uh, why should we be as concerned as clearly so many Canadians already are? Well, you know, I think I, I come back to first principles on this and I think for an entire generation, their use of these services, of posting TikToks or Instagram or things on YouTube, that's their expression. That's the way mm-hmm. they communicate. In yep. the same way that for me it might have been emails or blog posts, and for a prior generation it might have been letters or faxes. We would never dream of saying the CRTC ought to be regulating the content of our emails, of our letters, uh, or of our blog posts. And yet that's precisely what the government has in mind for the communication activities of millions of Canadians who speak using this form of audio, video, podcasting and the like hmm interesting stuff michael geist always a pleasure to have you on the program let's make sure it doesn't take quite so long between our our next conversation uh terrific to have you we appreciate your making a little bit of time for us today fascinating stuff thanks michael oh my pleasure thanks so much for having me there's michael geist joining us from ottawa where he is the canada research chair in internet and e-commerce law at the university of ottawa's law school michael geist one of canada's uh, premier voices uh, when it comes to the internet there's an interesting travel survey going on from the folks at finder the countries are still restricting movements a year into the pandemic as we all know with borders closed and airlines operating on reduced schedules the folks at finder are running monthly surveys in 19 countries, and so far they've talked to close to 90,000 people to find out their plans 
support domestic and international travel in the uh, in in the, the few months ahead of us. And according to what were available uh, information this morning, Canadians have the lowest interest in travel in the next three months. So what's up with Canadians? Let's ask Nicole McKnight, the PR manager for Canada for Finder.com, the people behind the survey. Nicole, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thank you so much for coming on again. Well, it's good to have you back, Nicole. And this is an interesting yeah. story. What do you what do you figure is is going on here in Canada? Is it just our is it the slow vaccine rollout? We just understand nobody's going to be able to go anywhere for a while yet. So just dial down the travel excitement. Is that what you what you're getting here? Yeah, I think that's the biggest factor right now. As you know, certain provinces are harder hit than. But you know, it's third wave and it's kind of more like NAMI. It's just kind of taken over, unfortunately, and stress in hospital capacity and all of these sorts of things that have made Canadians, you know, it's really gotten to them and realized that, you know, we're not out of the woods yet still with this pandemic. And as you said, the slow vaccine rollout, you know, there's hope on the horizon, but maybe not in the short term. Interesting. So now stay where you are. Don't move, Nicole, because we had some problems yep. with breakup in your phone, and now it's just crystal clear. So don't move. Oh, okay. Yes. <laughs> so okay. Us, sounds so, good. <laughs> so, so tell us uh, who, if we're the, if we're the last on the list of these nineteen countries, ever yes. so slowly making travel plans. Who's at the top of the list? Uh, actually, Malaysia. Forty four percent said they would travel in the next three months. India, the Philippines. Uh, Italy and Russia in the top five. Um, so sort of countries in Asia and, and Europe tend to take the lead and thinking that they'll do some domestic uh, or inter- probably more domestic travel, I would think, as opposed to international. Um, sure. But then our neighbors, our neighbors to the south, the, the Americans, which are, you know, a bit ahead of us when it comes to the vaccine rollout, a mm-hmm. quarter of them plan to travel domestically or internationally in the next three months. Not surprised to hear that at all. I mean, they've been traveling yeah. to the tune of many millions every weekend now for several weeks, Nicole. So that shouldn't surprise mm-hmm. us. Uh, I suppose, though, I, I, I guess I'm I'm just a little shocked that Canadians are are so far down the list. And now, does that include international and domestic travel? Because if we might, if yes. we may not be planning a trip to go to Hawaii anytime right. soon, but maybe yep. back to Saskatchewan for some time with the family over the summer. Now that seems a little more doable. It does. So the difference between international, so for international travel, Canadians, you know, like you said, only one to 3% would even anticipate that in the next three months. Whereas Mm. domestic travel, it was more like about 7% on average. So there are some people planning to travel domestically, maybe between provinces, depending where they live. Um, But yeah, overall kind of dismal (laughs) numbers. The one thing to point out is that on our website, on our travel deal sites, we've noticed that a there's been a big increase in the last month in interest. So a 12, you know, 12% sort of month over month increase. So steady increase in Canadians dreaming about their next trip, starting to plan their next trip, maybe even locking in a deal on their next trip, thinking, you know what, now's the time to lock in a deal, you know, if they're hopeful for the fall or that sort of thing. And and often these deals that we're seeing right now are, are including caveats to, you know, be able to get out of your trip or if you need to. So it's it's an opportunity really. And, and and as you uh, point out, the the opportunity uh, you can underline that word a couple of times, Nicole, because as, <laughs> as we're as we're learning, as the world begins to open up, 
those initial yes. travel, not the, the uh, travel's going to get really expensive really fast because the airlines yes. have a lot of ground to make up. But by way of getting us up and out and back into the world, the first yes. wave of travel deals is going to be something uh, pretty spectacular. There's going to be some just amazing deals. And what we're learning here is that a lot yeah. of people, uh, Canadians, typical cautious Canadians, mm -hmm. are firming yeah. up plans for 22. They're taking a flying yeah. pass on this year altogether, but they're already booking right. for 22. So that's probably what you're starting to see, right? Oh, yeah. Like we're looking on our travel deal site. We're seeing, you know, some um, upwards of 50 percent off airfare to certain yes. destinations being offered. So. So, yeah, to your point, it's just about I think at this moment and maybe in the next few months, it's a great opportunity to, you know, maybe lock in that trip for next year, maybe late later this year, if you're you know, making certain assumptions about vaccines um, and definitely into next year. And, you know, you might get that great deal for a really, you know, big trip that you hadn't maybe thought you could do until now yeah yeah that's a really good that's a really good point nicole and i just like to follow mm -hmm. up on it because and you and i both know and and yeah. even your surveys tell you even if we don't have any firm yeah. plans for the next three months canadians are are travelers and there's an awful lot of us just itching to get going so oh, yeah. I, I, how, <laughs> how do we where do we go nicole to be yeah. sort of uh, to have those deals on our radar so when something extraordinary comes up we can go up oh, i'm gonna lock that one in what's where's is finder the best place to go to just have a that all of that's just stuff just sort of rolling by at all times definitely so you can go to finder.com um slash ca travel deals you know just go to the site check out our travel section it's, it's a great place to start because you can research different opportunities uh get a few tips on when to book when there might be you know great opportunities and deals and we've got lots of partners that are listing all of their flight options and travel packages on there so so yeah that's a great place to start researching uh on finder.com travel deals but just in general you know get, get yeah. out there start looking start talking what to people you, what about, are you hearing what, nicole about vaccine passports uh, it's the eu has already said you know we're going to accept uh, double vaccinated or fully vaccinated americans as early as this summer provided they have proof of that uh, full vaccination yeah. it's becoming more i think obvious that for people to be yeah. able to travel anywhere you're going to need right. some kind of cert certification of vaccination so what are you hearing at finder is that part of your survey are you asking people are they okay with vaccine passports what can you tell us we, we, we honestly we haven't looked too deeply into that but i the big learning around this is you know our government has has kind of talked about that hinted at it i, I you know we're obviously not we're not there just yet. So I think right. if you if you're a traveler at heart, my advice and our advice at Finder would be, you know, make sure to stay on top of getting your vaccines, getting, you know, whenever they become available, do that. And mm -hmm. then, you know, because the government could make an announcement at any moment saying, OK, now you need to do this. And to your point earlier, the second they make that announcement, travel providers are going to all of a sudden realize, oh, there's this pent up demand and prices right. may skyrocket. So mm -hmm. it's just basically be ready, get, you know, I would get your vaccines, get, get ready for your destination that you want to go to look for destinations where, you know, they might be more open to having certain travelers that it may be safer to travel to, obviously look into all mm -hmm. of that now and, and yeah, lock in those deals um, because the second they make those announcements as they are, like you said, in Europe and other countries, yes. I think we're going to start seeing changes to pricing.
That's right. And so the trick is to be, it, it's all about timing, isn't it, Nicole? Mm-hmm, you, to, mm-hmm. and, and everybody, and you talk about, I think the operative word here is pent up demand. It's going to be quite a competition yes. for those, those sweet deals when they start opening up, isn't it? Yes, I think so. And I mean, as you know, with the answers, you can just imagine that winter of 2021, 2022, I think everybody's going to be wanting to head to those hotter destinations and popular destinations. So keep that in mind and, and just get prepared before, before everyone else says. <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right. Being prepared. That's uh, great stuff, Nicole. Good to have you back on the program. Thanks yeah. for uh, creating a little room on a Saturday morning to join us. It's, it's lovely to have you back with us. And a good for reminder sure. that, uh, you know, those travel dreams uh, are getting closer yeah. every day. Yes. Thank you so much, Sterling, for having me on anytime. You bet. There's Nicole McKnight joining us from Toronto. Nicole is the PR manager for Canada for Finder.com. Check him out. After a five-year absence, Formula E is one step closer to returning to Canada. This after Vancouver City Council overwhelmingly approved a three-day race event in the False Creek neighborhood next summer. That would be July 2022. The organizer of the Formula E race, or the uh, the Vancouver E Prix, is the Montreal Group Group the OSS group. And it's a pleasure to welcome the CEO of the OSS group, Matthew Carter, joining us from Montreal. Mr. Carter, Matthew, good morning and welcome. Good morning. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. This is exciting news for Vancouver fans. I'm not much of a car guy, Matthew, but I must tell you, when we had the uh, Indy races here in Vancouver 10, 15 years ago, uh, I went down to a couple of them, and just the I just enjoyed it from the from the point of view of a spectacle. Uh, it, it irritated a few of the folks because of the noise factor. I didn't mind it at all, but apparently some of the locals did. But that was the big the big problem that caused all of this to eventually go away. So talk. Talk to us about Formula E race cars, Matthew, and noise, please. So, so Formula E, as, as, I'm, as I'm sure you're aware, is the electric version of Formula One. So they are. Right. So they look very similar to an Indy car or a Formula Formula One car. They're an open wheel, single seater race car. Uh, obviously, the key differential with Formula E is that the car is fully electric. So, mm-hmm. uh, in terms of noise, you're going to hear. Um, you actually hear the changing of the gears. You hear the brakes. You hear the tires squealing. And then it's really a kind of a, a hum that comes from the engine of the, of the, of the or the, the powertrain of the car itself. Um, sure. In terms of numbers, that uh, it comes in, the Formula E race at their peak, I think they're coming at 65 decibels, as opposed to about 140 for an Indy car. So it's considerably quieter. Uh, just a curiosity question, because I don't know how this works. As part of every race, whether it's NASCAR or Formula One, the uh, a factor in determining the winner can be pit stops and how long it takes you to get in there and, and refuel your car. If you're driving an e-car, Matthew, do you, do you have to pit stop uh, for anything other than tires? There, there's no fuel issue, or is there? No, exactly. There's no, there's no fuel issue, there's no, and there's no pit stops in... Uh... In the current uh, iteration of Formula E, there's no pit stops either. So Formula E is, uh, is all about sustainability and, and climate change and, and looking forward to the future. The series itself is actually a, nearer, is, is a, is a net zero carbon event from, from the year it was started. So they try and do everything to be more sustainable and therefore the tyres that we use um, stay on. It's just one set of tyres that the cars have through the wow. whole race. So as you say, there's no pit stops, but there's certainly lots of excitement. Uh, there's just been a race actually in uh, in Monaco, a Formula E race in Monaco this morning, um, and there was 
probably more overtakes in that race than in the Formula One race that's been there for the last 10, 15 years because the cars are that little bit narrower and that little bit lighter. Um, it just makes for a fun spectacle. Is an e-car at least as fast as a Formula One car, Matthew, or is it in fact a little faster? Uh, well, it's, uh, it's an interesting question, and it really comes down to how you define fast. Um, because the problem with uh, with electric vehicles and, and as technology moves on, as I'm, as I'm sure you're aware, is, is down to range. Therefore, a Formula E car, if they turn the engine up to full power uh, over one lap, it would probably be on par with a Formula One car. However, okay. they need to manage that energy to make sure that they can, they can sustain the 45 minutes of racing. So it's all about a trade-off between speed and energy recovery, and that's what makes for exciting racing. Absolutely. Interesting stuff. So, Matthew, there's much more to this three-day event than just the actual car race. Now, it takes three days because of time trials and all that sort of thing on the actual race course. But another aspect to this formula or the Vancouver E-Prix is the commitment of your group, the OSS group, to putting on a big show. You're talking concerts on the Friday night and the Saturday night, a big electric vehicle convention and gathering around the race. This is... There's lots more to it than just a, a cars going around a circuit, isn't there? Absolutely, absolutely. So, so just a slight correction to what you say there. The, the racing itself actually does only take place on one day. So all of okay. the qualifying and the practice and everything all takes place on Saturday. And that's something okay. that is, that, that's the same throughout Formula E races. And they do that because they tend to go downtown with Formula E and they want as little mm -hmm. disruption as possible. So they try to condense everything into one day so that they, there's as little disruption. What we decided to do was to try and turn it into more of a, as you say, a festival. So we have a two-day business conference, uh, which will be held on the, on the site of the circuit, so in the Falls Creek area there. Mm -hmm. uh, and there'll be a business conference on the Thursday and the Friday. And then on the Friday afternoon, the racetrack will be, um, so it'll be going live, as they say. Um, and that's when the TV cameras will be making sure they've got the right shots. We'll be checking the timing sure. loops. And on that Friday afternoon, we'll be encouraging the people from the business conference to come across and to interact with the teams and the drivers. And then there'll be, we're hoping to have a celebrity race on the Friday afternoon. And we're also going to open up the track. So when the track is, is, is closed, if you like, when, it's, when it's, um, it, it's available, we're also going to open it up to the residents. So the residents of the, of the local area there can come and they can ride or walk or rollerblade or jog or do whatever they want around the track. Around the course. Fun. Exactly. Wow. And then, as you say, Friday evening, we'll be having a music concert, um, probably within, uh, so BC Place and Rogers Arena, are both, mm -hmm. both adjacent to the circuit there. Sure, um, yeah. So prior to COVID, we were looking at some, uh, some big international artists that were going to come into BC Place. Obviously, now with everything that's happened, there's a, there's a glut of performers looking, for, uh, looking to, to promote themselves. So we're in the process now of just choosing who that's going to be, but we're going to have an artist on the Friday evening then the race on the Saturday, and then another artist on the Saturday evening. And the Fantastic. idea of the two music, the idea of the two music concerts is that they are very different. So we're aiming for two different demographics. Um, so probably um, a slightly more mature, if I can say that, artist on the Friday evening um, after the business conference, and then maybe a, a slightly younger crowd for the Saturday concert after the, after the Formula E race. Interesting stuff. Michael, I'm almost out of time, but you, we've got to include our, our fans. Uh, seating for how many thousand people available for the race? So for the race, so we, we can sort of, we can, we can adjust our seating, but the, the figures that we've got at the moment, we've got seating for about 55,000. 
Fantastic. Michael, uh, thanks very much, Matthew. I appreciate this. Uh, we'll talk more as we get a little closer to the Absolutely. race. It's very exciting stuff, and we do appreciate your giving us a bit of a teaser this morning. We appreciate it very much. Thanks, Matthew. No problem. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Bye-bye. There's uh, Matthew Carter. Uh, he's the CEO of the OSS Group, the people bringing the Vancouver E-Prix to town next July. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone. Like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.